0: Philippe, from one accent to another, I guess, isn't it? You know, it's never a good thing for a preacher when he gets up and he sees the song before his sermon as his glory appears. Uh, And then you have to get up. It's kind of not good for your nerves. But one of the things that we're going to see tonight is that the person we're talking about, the Apostle John, was somebody for whom his glory did appear. And so I invite you to turn with me to the first letter of John, Um, near the end of the Bible for Revelation. And just as as you're doing that, (laughs) I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and we'll pray. Father, we thank you that we can open your word together. We are grateful, Lord, that we have a united common bond among us, regardless of race, regardless of creed, regardless of accent. We thank you because we are all one in Christ. Lord, as we heard this morning in our sermon, we are grateful that you are building a united people out of the diversity we see around us. Lord, as we look together as a people, your people, at your word tonight, we pray that you will knit in our hearts your truths, that with the light of your word will open fully to us and turn on in our hearts, that we can see what's there and that we can respond rightly to you. Our desire tonight, Lord, is to draw near to you through your word. And so bless us in this endeavour. We ask for your name's sake. Amen. So John was, uh, the, the, the Gospel of First John was written obviously by John. It may not be that obvious if you look into the history books. There's a lot of contri- controversy about what John did and didn't write. and But we're not going to worry about that. As far as we know, John wrote the book. Now, the interesting question to ask though is, when did John write this book? There's, um... We don't know a lot about John after the after Acts. Once Acts kind of closes and we see John appear for the last time, we don't know a lot. There's not a lot of there's not much recorded about him in the in the in the rest of the the Word of God. Uh, we hear in Galatians that he's mentioned in connection to uh, the uh, the meeting of all the, the believers back in Jerusalem where Paul meets him. But beyond that, we don't know much. What we do know, though, is we understand that he was exiled to um, Patmos, which is an island off the coast of uh, Asia Minor. Uh, he was exiled there by an emperor called Domitian. Uh, and in, when he was on the island of Patmos, as we know, he wrote the Book of Revelation. And that's what I was talking about before. His glory appeared to John, you know, on uh, on the island of Patmos, on a in the worst possible place he could think of that God's glory might appear, a prison colony. God appears in his glory to John, and he records the, the book of Revelation. One of the standout features that we often refer to, possibly almost the most often thing we refer to in Revelation, is, is the letters to the seven churches. These letters to the seven churches, as you know, were warnings to these churches. They all, except for one or two, had, one or, you know, had bad marks against their names, had things against them that the Lord held against them. And so... John gets to write this letter to these churches to say, hey, here's some areas you guys need to work on. Here's some areas that you need to think about. So, it turns out though that John actually seems to have been released from Patmos at some stage. Uh, He's released from Patmos, and what do you do? If you're, if you're John the Apostle, you are the, the messenger or the one through whom Christ has revealed problems in the churches around Asia Minor, what do you do? Well, it turns out John, it seems, has gone to Ephesus, one of those seven churches, and he's begun to minister in Ephesus as a bishop there to these seven churches and probably other churches in the area as well in order to preach to them, and, and we can only imagine to help right some of the wrongs that the Lord Jesus Christ identified in the book of Revelation to them. So as part of this, in this time at Ephesus, it seems he's written the book of 1 John. Now, when we think of the book of 1 John, and I think we had this come up in a Bible study recently, the question was asked, what is the book of 1 John about? And we often jumped and, and we look at you know 1 John 5, uh, chapter I think it's 16, which says, these things are written that you may know. Right? That you have eternal life. And that's, that's true. That is part of the message of the book of John. But that's not necessarily why John wrote this book. It wasn't just to impart to these people this assurance. There was a reason, there was something that prompted him to write this epistle, a circular letter to these churches. There was, there was probably two key heresies that John was writing against. There was about this time a man by the name of Sorinthus. I think that's how you say his name. Um, and he was a man who, who John was acquainted with. There's a story that uh, John went into the, some baths in Ephesus one time uh, to refresh himself and, and bathe as you do. And someone said to him that Sorinthus was there and he left this bar, these baths in a big hurry saying, let us get out of here before the judgment of God falls on this man. He was known as a heretic. And so John knew this guy. And he held to some interesting beliefs. So he held to the belief that Jesus was man, but he was not God. And you say, well, how do you, you know, when you get the story of Jesus, how do you make that work? And what he'd come up with was that Jesus was fully man, but during his baptism, the spirit, the Christ spirit had come on him. And before he died, the Christ spirit had left him. And this accounts for his miracles. um, There is another similar kind of, heresy around at the time, which is called docetism. You don't have to remember these names. Don't worry about remembering the names. Just remember this. Sorinthus, in fact, you don't even need to know who remembered what, really. One of these guys said that Jesus was man but not God, and docetism says that Jesus was God but not man. Okay? So you had both of these things in in, in circulation around these seven churches. And that Jesus merely appeared to be human. In other words, he was God and he appeared in a human kind of form. So when you think about what this means, whenever we think about worldview, and I don't know how many of you guys have looked at philosophy and worldview, there's this big apologetics movement going on in the church at the moment, which is, it's a blessing and a curse. But, um, I mean, it's mostly a blessing. There, there are some things about it that, uh, you know, we just need to focus on Christ, right? But anyway, we need to preach the word. Let me do that. Um, what does this mean, the, te- the heretics were teaching? So there are three key things about every worldview that they must answer. First one is, how did we get here? Every worldview must answer the question, how did we get here? Where did all this come from? The second question was, what is the problem man has? What is it that we have a problem with in the world, the way it is? And the third thing is redemption. What is the solution to man's problem? Okay. This is all just by way of introduction, so I don't want to get too deep into this, but this all came out of um, Plato, so the Greek philosopher earlier on. His idea was, and his thinking was, what we call dualism. There's two spheres. There's, 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 there's material... There's matter, which is eternal, and there's the spirit world, which we would call the spirit world, which is also eternal. And so what Plato said was that essentially the, these create, there is no such thing as creation, there is only the moulding, if you like. So creation is forever. Uh, but what they did is he, he held to the fact that these, the spirit world was, kind of, was good. right? That was the divine. And the matter, the world that we live in and everything physical, was bad. It was chaotic. So creation happens by this divine spirit imposing itself on the physical matter. Now, what does this mean in terms of this heresy? And this is all, what it's all basically saying is that because matter is chaotic, the problem that man has is not sin. The problem man has is that we're a good person in a bad body. You see, the, you see the problem? So both of these these belief systems held to this kind of dualism which said that spirit is good and man is partaking of that divine nature but at the same time we're also physical and we've got this body. When it comes to things like sin um, what happens in the body is not the soul doing it it's the body doing it. So we separate ourselves from these things happening which also goes to say that well, why worry about morality? Why worry about right and wrong? Why worry about these things at all? The problem was not so much that we needed to have these things righted or fixed up. The problem was that we need this philosophical knowledge to understand our connection with the divine. That was the key to salvation for these men. This later turned into what we now know of as Gnosticism. And we won't go into that. But this is pre-Gnostic kind of thinking. But knowing all of this now... When you look at the book of 1 John, you can start to see why he introduces it as he does. And let's have a read in 1 John 1. We read, let's read from verse 1, we'll read through to verse 10. He says there, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. As we read those first few verses in verses 1 to 4, knowing that they divided the the soul and the spirit and said Jesus can't be man and God, can you see now why he says we touched him, we heard him? We've experienced him. he's trying to say what we saw was real, this was no apparition appearing to be man, this was a man who was also God He's saying this wasn't just this wasn't just a man, this was God come down and we saw what he did and we heard what he said. and this is the message that he gave us to give to you. so. The overall flow of the book of First John is essentially chapter 1 is introduction. It talks about the incarnation of Christ and it talks about the message of God to us from, through, through John. The second part is his purpose. Why, why is he writing? He's writing there to say, we don't want you to be sin and we don't want you to be deceived. And then from chapter 3 through to chapter 5, he's talking about the nature of the Christian life. Okay, So that's the basic breakdown of the book of John. So, the First John. So he focuses on verses five through to ten and I'm going to give you the whole I'm not going to go through the whole thing in detail, but I just need to give you the, the what he's getting at here in this passage. Because this all fits together. You've got here in verse five, this is the message we have heard from him. If you go through the book of first John and you look at words like we write, I write, I have written, and message and promise. You can kind of start to see he's giving a message, he's giving a promise, he's writing, he's got purpose, and this has flow. And here's his message. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you. Okay, So the whole of the rest of this book is built on verses 5 through to 10. And in this passage there are essentially two, well there's three key points here. The first part is about the character of God. The message that John is trying to convey here is something about God. And we see that in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you. What's the message, John? That God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That's the key message. God is light. Well, John, what does it mean that God is light? What does it mean that in him there is no darkness at all? John has a, a double negative here to say there is no darkness. None. Nothing. He's making a really strong point to say that light and darkness are contrasted and God is light. There's no darkness whatsoever in him. Why is he making this point? Well, if we look in the rest of John's writing, particularly in the gospel, we see the, this idea of light coming through again. And one passage in particular in chapter 3 says this. It says, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and men loved Darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Notice from this passage, first of all, that light came into the world. In the beginning of John's Gospel he says, You know, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And then this light came into the world. This life became flesh. So John's saying it came into the world, this light came into the world. Notice also from John 3, men love darkness rather than light. Notice also that we love darkness rather than light because our deeds are evil. We are doers of the light. Doers of evil hate the light. Okay, These are all things that John's saying in John 3. He's trying to make a contrast here between light and darkness. And his point is that... When it says God is light, it means he is holy and righteous and just. And good. I'm going to add good. Full things. He is holy and righteous, just and good. Okay? So when it says God is light, he's making a really firm point. God is light. God is holy. Now, he carries on after that, if you look in verses 6 through to 10. The beginning of each of those verses starts with a conditional statement, an if statement. Verse 6, if we say. Verse 7, if we walk. Verse 8, if we say. Verse 9, if we confess. Verse 10, if we say. For each one of these things, he's, he's saying we're either saying or doing something. He's making a contrast here between what we say we do and what we actually do. Okay. So if we say in verse 6 that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. There's a contrast here. Now, the key principle for all of these passages here is that God is light. How does that relate to us? Well, verse 6, if we say that we have what? Fellowship with him. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness... We lie. We cannot. In other words, we can't walk in the darkness if God is light and have fellowship with God. You can't do both of those things. His point is clear: that that if we walk in the light, then we will be in the light, and we will see ourselves as we as we really are. The word fellowship it's a, it, it carries the idea of close association, mutual interests. Mutual, a sharing of it, of a common bond, if you like. Outside of the scripture, this word was used to describe the relationship between a husband and wife. So if we say we have fellowship with him, there is a strong relationship between what he wants and what we want. You see the point? And so when we say we have fellowship with him, and we don't walk like he walks, we lie. That is the point upon which all of this passage hinges. So he covers in verse 6 and 7 the way we walk, and he covers in verse 8 through to 10 the, the, uh, the way we relate to sin. And that's what I want us to focus on this evening. So, knowing God, having fellowship with God, means that not only we will, will we have integrity in our walk, we will walk in the light... But it also means that we will have integrity in how we consider sin, and that's the key point I want to show you tonight. That we, that if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we will have integrity in how we consider sin. We're going to see three. I'm going to show you three points here. First of all, we're going to see um, that sin with integrity requires that we think rightly about ourselves. Considering sin with integrity requires we think rightly about ourselves. Secondly. Considering sin with integrity requires that we agree with God about our sin. And thirdly, considering sin with integrity requires that we think rightly about God. All this comes from having fellowship with the God who is light. So first of all, considering sin with integrity requires that we think rightly about ourselves. He says in verse 8, if we have, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Do you remember when you were a kid? We were talking, I was talking with somebody about this this morning. Uh, and you'd get on your bike, uh, you know, through the summer, you'd get on your bike, you'd ride to a park about 20 minutes away, and, and you'd just spend the afternoon hanging out there with friends. Do you remember that? Yeah. Do your kids do that today? No. No. Why, why is it that we don't let our kids do that today? Well, we, we know that the world is going downhill, don't we? We know that things are getting worse. We know you know you can't walk down the street at night anymore uh, in, in a lot of areas because you just don't know who's around. You don't know what is gonna what's going to happen. There's a lot of uncertainty because morality is, is starting to go down the hill. Not only that, but when we look around the world. We see that you know we've started to abandon justice. You know it's gotten to a point now where frequently the person committing the crime will sue the victim for damages because. You know, maybe they hit them in the head with a baseball bat because they're intruding in their home. And so the, 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 the uh, perpetrator of the crime is the one now suing for damages. We were inverting justice. Justice is no longer based on justice and right righteousness. Justice is now based on who can put forward the best argument. We look, for, we look at uh, the birth control and all of this. You know, it started off with the pill, and then it became the morning after pill, and then it became the 30 day later termination, then 90 day later termination, and then it's like any time termination. Well, what's next? You know in the last hundred years, we've seen unprecedented slaughter of human people, humankind, in the world that we've never seen before. Uh, we've had 50 million people under communism in the 20th century alone. Compare that to a Hitler's 11 million. And that's, that's not including the people who died in the wars. That's just the people who have been murdered throughout these things. And of course we have weapons of mass destruction that can wipe out cities and in case of little countries like mine, even entire countries. Well, Why do we have these problems? Why has this gotten so bad? And the, the answer is, is, of course, as John says here in verse 8, there is this sin principle inside of us. There's a law, as Paul calls it, inside of us. He says, and he calls it a principle in in Romans 7:21. We have this thing inside of us, and John says that if we say we have no sin, he's talking about that law. It's a noun here, not a verb. It's not not something we do; it's something we have. So we have inside of us this principle that drives us to, to to hate God we have inside of us, and it's inside of you, right? It's not something outside of you. It's not something that causes you, you know, to pushes you around from the outside and manipulates you. It's in you, from the inside, dragging you where you would not want to go as a Christian. Theologians call this the depravity of man. It is the principle inside of us that draws us always to evil. If we are to think about ourselves rightly, we must recognize this law of sin inside of us. Now, Here's something encouraging though. The only way you can recognize that law inside of you is if you're saved. Because without the illumination of God, and remember God is light, without his illumination, we cannot see that sin nature in us. In fact, without the Spirit of God coming inside of us, we can't, we don't even know that we're on the back of this rhinoceros that's charging toward hell. You know, we can't even tell that we're on it because we don't know anything else. It's only when the Holy Spirit comes into us, the Spirit of truth, who tells us and informs us of the reality of who we are, that we can start to see that we are people who have a sin principle. We need the light of God, and when we see the light of, when we know God, when we have fellowship with the God who is light, we see the sin principle in us very clearly. Have you ever heard someone say that mankind is basically good? It's because they haven't comprehended the light. Have you ever heard an atheist condemn God because uh, they they you know for wiping out all these idolatrous nations in the Old Testament? It's because they don't have any light; they can't see. I think it's funny that sinners can stand in judgment of God, but they can't see their sin. They can't see the need for sin to be dealt with justly. They don't have the light. They haven't comprehended the light. Do you know people who are not saved? It's because they have not met the God who is light. If we are fellowshippers with God, if we fellowship with him, and we are to think rightly about ourselves, we will see that sin. We will see that principle inside of us, and we will do something about it. Having fellowship with God, with a God who is light, means considering sin with integrity. Considering sin with integrity means thinking about ourselves rightly. We are depraved. Secondly, considering sin with integrity requires that we agree with God about our sin. He says in verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleans us from all unrighteousness. This is the second if statement in this passage. And here, he's not talking about what we say. He's talking about what we do. Remember, there are three I say, st- if we say statements, and there are three what we do statements. In this case, he's saying we confess. If we confess. Last time it's if we walk. The time is if we confess, if we confess our sins, this is a key part of being a Christian. The word confess here is an interesting word. If you go back in the Greek and you look at, well not in the Greek, you go back in history rather and you look at how the word is used. It was used as a legal term and it meant a, a, an agreement. You could use it to, as a contract to buy a house. You would call that, you know, by, the, by this particular word here, it would be not a confession. They would call it an agreement. Uh, it was a legal term. Um, but then, of course, it became used in cults and ultimately got associated with wrongdoing against a, a deity. And ultimately, we u- see it used in the New Testament in this way. And so the idea as we go through the Bible, as we go through the New Testament, is really interesting to map the usage of this word. It's not a word that is always used with sin. In fact, most of the time, in, fact, in John's writings, this is the only time he uses this word confess with regards to sin. All the other times in John's writing, he's talking about confessing a person confessing Christ. And when we think about the word as agree and we think about it in regard to Christ, we're talking about we're agreeing with who Christ says he is. And so the content the idea here, if we confess our sin, we're agreeing with God about this about this about our sin. And when it says sin, it's actually a plural, it's sins. It's talking about individual, identifiable sins. Um, we do see this word used this way in other writings. In fact, you know, if you think back to, uh, well, you go back to Matthew 6, uh, 3, six for instance. It says there that as people came to the to John the Baptist, um, what was John the Baptist? What was his? What were people being baptized for with John? It was a baptism of repentance, right? And so, what do we see? They were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. In Mark 1:5, all the country of Judea was going out to him, and the people of Judea, of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. More specifically, even in Acts chapter 19, many of those also who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. So they're talking about specific, identifiable practices that we do. And as people repent, they're identifying those individual specific practices, confessing them publicly so that people know about them. And the idea here is that they're repenting and leaving them behind. By confessing them, you're saying to people, I'm leaving this behind and I'm walking in the other direction. And that's what they're doing here. So confession is not merely just saying, yeah, I'm a sinner. This is very specific, very particular and individual. And again, we cannot do this if we do not know the God who is light. If we have fellowship with him and we are unwilling to repent, if we are unwilling to confess individual sins, then are we really fellowshipping with him? Isaiah presents a really good example of this. He sees the Lord in the temple on high, He sees the smoke filling the temple. He sees the train of the Lord symbolizing the majesty of God. In the old days, the longer your train as a king was, the greater your dominion was. And so when it says that God's train fills the temple, this is the great king in the temple. He sees this. He hears the seraphim singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. He feels the foundations of the thresholds trembling at the voice of him who called out. He sees the God who is light. And what's his response? Woe is me. But it's not just, oops, woe is me. I'm a sinner. He's more specific. I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. I shouldn't even associate with these people. But I'm one of them. And I do these things, I say these things that I shouldn't say. And I can imagine Isaiah um, You know, in some ways I look at Philippians 2 where it says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And I think of Isaiah and I think in that day people will see God as he is, as the God who is light and they will fall on their faces and they will be repentant but it will be too late. Seeing the light Seeing the God who is light reveals to us our sin. And the result of that is that we agree with God about our sin. There is no question. There is no ifs or buts. The most hardened atheist today will also bow their knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Unconditional surrender. Thirdly, uh, considering sin with integrity requires that we think rightly about God. If we, if we have fellowship with the God who is light, then we're going to consider our sin with integrity. And that's going to require that we think rightly about God. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us in verse 10. In verse eight, John talks about the law. uh, Sorry, the uh, sin as a law, as a principle. It's something we have in us that drives us away from God, that drives us to sin, that drives us to rebellion. Here, he's saying, if we say we have not sinned, it's a verb. He's talking about things we've done, not a law that is at work in us, but the outworking of that law. He's not saying that just that the law is in you, but it's active in you. He's not just saying it's active in you, but you give into it. You've given into it. We've all given into this, this law, and individual sins have been the outflow of it. And we can see these in our lives, can't we? Other people can see them often better than we can see them. But if we don't see these individual sins, if we aren't looking for them, you no, know, God says there is none good. There is none who seeks God. As a believer, we've changed. We've got new life inside of us. But we are still sinners. We still sin daily. And he says here, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Well, how does his word fit in here? His word, isn't it? It's the tool by which he tells us about our individual sins. His word is the the means by which we can know these sins. If we have fellowship with him and walk with the God who is light, we're going to be looking in his word so that we can see what pleases this God. We want to have that fellowship with him, which means we need to have a shared goal, the shared desires. We need to want what he wants. And so we need to be in the word. And as we read the word, we're going to read passages like this. The deeds of the flesh are evident which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorceries, enmities, strife, jealousies, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness. mean, what a list. It takes a lot longer to read it than you think. And as you read through that list, you should see in that list yourself. You should see there the outburst of anger that we had at our children yesterday. We should see there the envy for the iPad that came out a couple of months ago or the jacuzzi that we've been thinking about for all that time. We should see there the disputes that we're having with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We should see there the enmity, the bitterness we're harboring. And we should see our individual sin. God's word provides that light because he is the God who is light and he reveals himself to us in his word. There are other passages, Colossians 3, Ephesians 4. There are, every, there are examples to us, as we read through even the example of Judas. The sin nature in us would drive us to do what Judas did. We should be able to see the sin nature in us, in the Word, when we read it. And if we don't, well, you know, there's two ways of saying this. The nice way of saying this would be to say that we've made friends with sin. But John doesn't say that. He says we've made God a liar. If we fail to see our sin, if we say, I don't have sin, I'm not committing individual sins, I'm not doing anything wrong, we're making him a liar. This drives us, you know, his word is designed and, and knowing the God who is like and knowing, you know, walking with, in fellowship with him should be a humbling experience. Because this is a great God we're talking about. There is absolutely no darkness in him at all. He is a great God and we should see our fallenness, our depravity. And the response should be absolute surrender, complete confession and acknowledgement of our sin. Having fellowship with the God who is light requires us to consider sin with integrity. This means that we consider, this means that we think, it requires that we think about ourselves rightly. That means that we see the principle of sin in us. It means that we agree with God about our sin, that we confess our sin openly. It means that we think rightly about God, that we let his word dwell in us and we see ourselves and we let God be God and acknowledge that he is right, that we are wrong. And we let His Word change us. But there's one other consequence of walking with the God who is light. And this is in verse 9. It says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, the God who is light is not just holy and righteous, but He is good. If you look at chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, he says there, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Jesus Christ did not come into the world to completely erase sin from our lives. But he did come into the world To propitiate our sin. That's just a really big word that means that the wrath and anger that God would direct at us for our sin, Jesus bore on the cross for us. The wrath of God has been completely satisfied in Jesus Christ. So as we fellowship with Him, as He is in the light, and we see our sin, there's hope. Because God is good. Because Christ is our propitiation, because we can be, uh, they have that sin put away. The word "forgive" there" means "put away." It means to be dismissed, to let go God said that God's wrath is satisfied, He no longer holds it against us. The idea of forgiveness is that we will not bring it up against the other person again,, again you know, ever. It's gone. It's history. We will not hold it against them. We will not let it affect the relationship we have with them. And these are good principles to remember between each other too. It means that if, if I'm going to forgive my wife, I need to not bring it up with her again. Not hold it against her. Not let it be an issue in our relationship. That's what God does with us. That's what God calls us to do with one another. If we come into the light, we have fellowship with the God who is light. We see our sin... And we know that the power of, that that is at work in us. You know, we're going to know that there's a power against God in us. We're going to know that there is a power in us that is fighting that. We're going to confess our sins and we are going to receive forgiveness. We have hope. We do not have, remember as, uh, Dr. Chow said this morning, we don't have to walk around with a facade. We are sinners. We walk with the God who is light, so we know that. But we have the propitiator who has propitiated our sins, and we now can have fellowship with the God who is light. And as a consequence, we should be people who think about ourselves rightly, agree with God about our sin, and we confess our sin, and then we agree with God when we evaluate our sin and say, you are right. I am wrong, and we receive forgiveness. As the last words of that, or some of the words of that last song we sang, it says, you gave me hope. You made me whole. You took my place at the cross. Let us close in prayer. Father, we are grateful for the cross. And what an amazing privilege it is that we can have fellowship with the God who is light and that we can come into your presence. We know that we will see our sin when we come there, but we know there is forgiveness. Thank you, Lord, for the cross. Thank you, Lord, for cleansing us and help us to respond rightly to our sin. Help us, Lord, to consider ourselves rightly, to agree with you about our sin, and then to think rightly about who you are, to recognise that you are righteous and that we are the sinners. Lord, we thank you that as we see our sin, we can see your grace more fully. Please illuminate through your word to us your goodness. Help us to see the reasons that you are called the God of light, because you are good, because you are loving, because you are holy, and help us to worship you because of it, we ask in Jesus' name.